Hey team of Eternal Optimists, it's Matt Drinkon here. And before we launch into today's epic conversation, I've got a big announcement. Drum roll, please. My brand new book is coming out on March 8th. And perhaps even better news, you can get it for only 99 cents on Amazon that day. We don't run ads on the show. And if you ever want to give back and support the Eternal Optimist community, go to Amazon on March 8th and get the Kindle version for only 99 cents. Just search for the book title, The Eternal Optimist. It's never too late. And you can download it directly to your device. Now, let's get to the show. Hello, and welcome to The Eternal Optimist Podcast. My name is Matt Drinkon, and I'm your host that's going to tell you like it is. I'm going to tell you the truth. I'll let you make your own conclusions about things. I'm not going to attempt to influence your opinion on current matters or events. I'm simply going to lay things out there. I'm going to share with you stories of people who've overcome tremendous hardship to go on to be successful. And team, when you pay attention, when you have your antennas up, and you allow yourself to be curious when listening to the show, you may be inspired to the umpteenth degree to get in gear and take some of this knowledge that we have and turn it into action at the intersection of knowledge and action is where wisdom starts to take hold and we change our lives, my friends. Before we get started today, I want to encourage you, we can connect on social media. You can follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Eternal Optimist Podcast Account, where I do a live stream, 7 a.m. Eastern Time here on the East Coast, United States, every day, Monday through Friday. Today's episode is all about finding happiness. In the past year of 2022, there were a number of amazing guests, and Mr. Ashish Kothari ranks right up there near the top for me. In one conversation we had, he made an impact on the future trajectory of my happiness, and I am thrilled to bring him to you. He's on a mission to democratize happiness, and here are his qualifications. By his early 40s, he was 17 years into working at the global powerhouse McKinsey Consulting the last five of which he was a partner. He was financially very successful. He was married, beautiful family with kids, and he was incredibly unhappy. Now, how many of us ever felt unhappy at work? When we achieve some sort of success, we should feel happy, right? Well, Ashish was unhappy and he did something about it. He went on a journey to discover how to be happy. And in this discussion today, Ashish outlines his journey to seek and understand happiness. He shares a number of micro practices to help you right now. And I can tell you, I've been practicing them since he shared them with me a few months ago, back in October of 2022, and they work. He frames things in such a simple and expert way, topics that you've heard of before, and likely not in this fashion. Topics such as mindfulness, setting intentions, being present. He shares how we can consciously change how we interact with our environment to increase our happiness right now. Hello, and welcome to the Eternal Optimist Podcast, the show for optimists by optimists. This is the show for people who see the good in the world and want to make a positive difference in the lives of their families and communities. Each week, you'll hear inspiring stories that will get you thinking bigger and playing more offense in life. With your host and high-performance coach, Matt Drinkon. I'm 
curious, being someone who's been a high-level leader, consultant, coach, mentor for so many people over the years, I wonder if my experience, nine years in a coaching, might mirror your experience. I think if I recall, you had like 17 years at McKinsey, and I'm wondering if our experiences are similar. What I've come to learn, and through my lens, through my truth, is that as my business grows and scales, and as I continue to coach leaders that some might say are on a higher scale, meaning that the people I'm coaching now are running billion-dollar organizations versus people that were making $110,000 a year you know, nine years ago. And I found that the gap, that the greater the success or the income or the reputation, maybe this is a ladder of some kind, I'm not finding that there is innate happiness or there is balance or harmony in personal lives. I'm feeling and seeing that these people, some of them may have been sold this idea of success. Let's go get this to the detriment of the concept of being happy or the detriment of time with family or quality time there. And they strive to do it. I'm doing it for my family. I'm doing it for others. And they wake up one day and realize that they're so disconnected with everything and everyone in their life and they don't know how to turn it off. And it's always more, more, more. I want more to a place where it's enough. And it all comes from the inner wiring, right? That's kind of at the core of the book that I wrote and the work that I'm doing. And I'll talk about it, right? Then that is frankly the reason behind the company that I created and why I left McKinsey to kind of just do this work. But before that, you shared with more senior leaders as they're going forward. There's this beautiful story. It's a very heart-touching story that I read that I want to just share with your listeners, which is the story of this father who's works really hard and just always on, sometimes for dinner, has a quick dinner, then he's always back in his office and it's closed. And his five-year-old son, one day, sheepishly knocks and he's reading a newspaper and he says, Dad, can I disturb you for a minute? And he says, what? And he says, how much do you make an hour? How much do they pay you for an hour? And he says, why do you want to know that? And he says, I just want to know how much they pay you for an hour. And, you know, he says, I get paid $100 an hour. Okay. Every hour I work, I make $100 an hour. And he says, okay, got it. And then he goes away. And then the next day he comes back again. He knocks and talks to his father and says, dad, can you give me $30? And his father works really hard and he's doing all this to provide for the family. And he gets a little upset. He's like, why do you want $30? What do you need? Why do you want $30? What do you want to waste $30 on? And now I'm not going to give you $30. I work so hard to provide a roof and food and all of these things. I'm not going to give you $30. And the son sheepishly goes away. And then he's reflecting on, he's never asked me for $30. It's a specific amount. It's, I think, more like $33. What is it? So he goes and he wakes his son up. And he says, why do you want $33.30? He says, you know, because I'd love to buy an hour of your time. I have $67. I have $66 that I've saved up over the last year. I'm missing $37. And my birthday's coming up. And I don't want any of the gifts. I just want an hour where we can be just together and play. Yeah. And it really touched me because I think it's very similar. There's a lot of people who are living this story of I'm doing this for my family so we can have an amazing vacation together so I can afford to send my son to this. Or we're going to take my wife to this amazing dinner or you're going to buy him a car. All of these things. We have these stories that by building a big house and doing this, that's what we're giving. And 
oftentimes the sacrifices we are making around from a time point not being available to them, or even when we are available from a time point, from a mental point not being available for them, or even if we are there from a mind space and I'm with you, spiritually, I'm so exhausted and stressed because of everything else in terms of what I've created to be able to provide, I'm not there. And by the way, research is really clear on this. The longest running study on flourishing has been a study that's been run at Harvard since the 1930s. And they have tracked the people who were in the study. There were these Boston inner city kids as well as others that went to Harvard. And they studied them over generations, every week connecting with them and how they were feeling and all these medical tests. So you can imagine now the kids are in the study and even some kids are now in that continuing study. And you know what they found as the biggest driver of happiness and flourishing was actually the quality of connections. It wasn't the quantity, it was the quality. That was the biggest driver of happiness, success, longevity, all of that. Quality of connections, not the quantity, the quality of the connection, okay? And by the way, this message keeps coming back from so many places, and yet so many out there spend all their time working. You know, the work of Ronnie Ware, she was a palliative nurse, and she wrote this book called Five Regrets of the Dying. The first regret, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. The second regret or third regret is I wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends. We don't have to wait till our deathbed to recognize these things. That's the opportunity we have. And that's the work that I'm trying to do is get people grounded in the science of happiness that we've known for 20 years, grounded in the principles around happiness that we've known from spiritual traditions for thousands of years. But not just know them, but truly start to practice them, truly start to integrate them into their life. This practice that we just started this conversation with, the simple practice of what I shared with you before the holidays of, hey, I know you're not going to sit down and all of a sudden start meditating. Or even if you do meditating for 30 minutes in the day, what you're trying to do is mindfulness. So just start your day with one minute of being mindful Mm -hmm. while you brush. That's integration. Once you start doing that, it's a simple enough thing to do. But once you start doing that, everything else changes. Absolutely. Your influence on me since that conversation back in late October, it's been amazing. And I invite the audience to put your antennas up heavily if they're not already up of this idea. And the idea was when I wake up and I brush my teeth in the morning, pay attention for that first minute of brushing your teeth. Be mindful. Do it mindfully. Just pay attention. And I started with that. And then I took it to my actual meditation practice. I took it to my journaling practice. I took it to the first, like literally the first minute of playing soccer with my kids when we have our soccer practice, which was still going on back in November. And I, I maybe went a little bit obsessive with it, but started to think about the first minute of just about everything I did, do it intentionally, be really present, be mindful. And it has led to a real sense of inner peace. And I'm already a fairly happy person. The radar set to happy. And this has helped me to be, if there is such a thing, happier, more present, more at peace. And yeah, I thank you for that. It's a powerful practice. It is my pleasure. Look, it's these simple things. And by the way, for even those who meditate, that's what I'm creating in these micro practices, even in this class that I'm launching in, uh, in March, which is all around micro practices, small moves, things that take five minutes or less, in this case, even knit, but can actually start to shift our behaviors, start to form habits that allow us to be happier. And the key is happier, right? No matter how happy we are or how sad we are, we can always continue growing. That is the magic of this. This is not just for people who are 
sad or anxious or depressed. This is not just for people who are like, we can all choose. By the way, that's also research, Matt, which is really powerful again, right? Sonia Lubomirsky studied this in the 90s and 2000s. When she looked at her work, she found that about 50% of people's satisfaction, happiness, how they see the world is genetic. 50% of genes, you can't do much about it. And there's some people who just are both because of genes, but also because of how they've grown up, right? Like upbringing, cultural backgrounds, things of that nature. This is the whole classic, or some people see things as a glass half full, some people see as a glass half empty. We all have that. We are genetically predispositions, and that's about 50%. Only 10% are circumstantial. Think about how much time of people's life they focus on affecting circumstances, almost 70, 80%. Circumstantial is I win a lottery, I get promoted, I fall in love, I get married, I go on a great vacation, I buy a new car, I have an accident and I lose a limb, I lose a loved one. 10% is circumstantial, okay? 10%, that's it. The rest, 40% are activities that we can consciously do that can increase our happiness. And those are those nine practices, right, that I write about. She had another set of them. There's a lot lot of overlap. And I studied tons of happiness researchers. I studied tons of spiritual texts around this. And they all coalesce around these practices of mindfulness and purpose and self-awareness and gratitude and connection and intentions. You know, it's what we pay attention to. But my reason when I wrote this book wasn't because there's so much Mm -hmm. great work out there. I wrote the book because I wanted to make a book, which is frankly a real practical guide for people to implement it in their lives. This is the book. It's Hardwired for Happiness. I'm holding it up and it's going to be in the show notes uh, and you'll be able to link to it and get it. I got it the day it came out. It's pretty fantastic. If you are listening on the podcast, you won't see that, but know that it's out there. It's amazing. Thank you. For those who are listening, I'll just cover briefly here. I know what these practices are so they can get a visual view of it. At the heart of the nine practices that I write about... And these practices are, again, I didn't discover them. I didn't research them either in terms of the backing of science behind why they work. But I did integrate them together and made it accessible into things that people can do. So at the heart of that is self-awareness. Nothing is possible without us being aware of where we are, how we are making sense of the world. That is at the heart. By the way, if we are self-aware, that's the only way we know, am I paying attention in the moment or not? If I'm not self-aware, I don't know what is my level of energy today, right now. Where am I physically, mentally, spiritually? If I'm not aware, if I don't know what my true strengths are, I can't really lean into what is my meaning, my calling in life. I can try and emulate other successful people. I can go get degrees and try and get jobs, but that isn't me. To know what is me, you have to look within. Did you have this self-awareness yourself now or at a young age? Or at what point did you start to realize in your life experience that this is the heart of it? To me, self-awareness was a really big shift for me. And that happened about six years ago, Matt. As I write in the book and as we have shared, I spent my first 22 years of professional life and frankly, my first 42 years of life just doing what I was told and executing on this script that so many people execute of what it means to be successful, right? You say, hey, you want to do well, you got to work hard, you got to execute. I was in consulting for 25 years, McKinsey for 17. Every role has certain kind of, if you will, requirements. And you say, I'm going to go do that. As an associate, I'm going to be a really good problem solver and know how to make pages. As an engagement manager, I'm going to really good at integrating these things together. As an associate partner, this is what I'm doing. 
And then I kept moving towards where externally, what did clients need? Because to make partner, to have a good portfolio of work, I was going towards what do clients need? And what are some things that I've learned along the way that I can do? Think about, again, external orientation. External orientation about moving up, external orientation about what do people need? What do I need? I hadn't done the work. I didn't know what do I need. I didn't know what I need. So I'll do what other people ask me to do, right? Because at least that way I'm actually being successful because people want me and I'm doing that work. And I had found myself, Matt, at 42, I had found myself at the pinnacle of my career. I was a partner at McKinsey for five years already. I was happily married. I was making good money. I had lots of friends. Luckily, that was always been, had been true for me. I always have kept connected with people my whole life. So I had lots of good friends. My health was fine. I was starting to pay for my excesses of 20s and 30s. It was okay. My parents were okay. And yet I was anxious. I was waking up with anxiety every day. There was nothing wrong and I was waking up with anxiety and I didn't know why it was. And I started looking for answers to that. And I went to this program that the firm offered. I was very grateful for that. And it was a week, Matt, where we weren't completely disconnected, nothing digital. Think about just that, nothing digital. And it was a week by ourselves. It was in a monastery in Portugal, an old monastery. It had been converted and been sold into a Ritz-Carlton, wow. but they still maintained the monastery. It had lots of amazing spiritual energy about the place from hundreds and thousands of years that place had existed and all the work that people might have done there. And in that week, we did a lot of work and the whole week was structured around going deep into who you are, why you are, why you see the world the way you see the world, what is truly getting in your way. And that week was the wake up week for me. For the first time in 18 months, Matt, I woke up without any anxiety. Also, as I went deep, I recognized that awareness of what, who I was and what I cared about came together for me which then propelled the next six years of my life. So what I realized were three things that week. And I'll tell you that self-awareness, that's where I found my work. I realized that what had been true about me, my core essence, my whole life, it had been relationships, connections, right? I'm in touch with people I worked with on a team 25 years ago. Nobody of that team is in touch with each other, but I'm in touch with them. I send out 1,000 Last year, it was 875. This year, it was 1,250 personalized emails at the end of the year. I mean, they're just people whose lives I've had been a part of walking and sharing, and I love being in touch with them. So that had been at the heart of who I was. If I wasn't working, what could you do? I would be connecting with people, checking in on them and seeing how I could help, how I could help them make connections, give them what they need, be a connector. The second thing I realized that week was I actually experienced some of this magic of what's in my book which was mindfulness, this notion of we see the world as we are, not as the world is. All the first time I was starting to see how these practices could really help me live a better life, be actually more effective. And so I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. And there is so much I can learn. I've spent this notion of, I spent my whole life learning how to do, but I didn't learn anything about how to, like I've just been focused on doing and executing and how to go up and I've reached the top of the ladder. And to your point, I'm like, but the gold isn't here. Yeah. The gold is not here. Like, where's the gold? The gold is not here. And so to me, versus saying, hey, the gold is within you all along. You're looking for answers outside. The answers are within and it's around these practices, right? And so that was insightful. And then the third, for me, I looked around and there were like 30, 35 other people, all senior partners and partners. 
every one of them had amazing stories. They were really smart. They worked really hard. This was not an ashish moment. Everybody was experiencing the impact from these practices. It was that day, that week, that it all came together for me. And I said, you know what? I'm going to spend the rest of my life learning as much about this whole field that I don't know anything about. I've just got a glimpse into. I'm going to read. I'm going to learn. I'm going to practice. I'm going to train. I'm going to actually spend my life creating programs that can help individuals truly integrate these practices into their lives so they can be at their best individually, so they can create and lead teams that can be best and at their full potential, and eventually then lead organizations that truly are creating a much beautiful, kinder world, but actually achieving goals that they can't even dream of. And that's what I want to go do. And that awareness, Matt, was I'm very grateful. And so my whole work now is around creating those experiences for people. But more importantly, taking them from that experience, but taking them along on a journey that helps them integrate these practices into their life. Because it's only by integration, by doing, we can shift our way of being. Knowing is worthless. I'm unpacking some of this and I love where it was. You were at a place at the top of the ladder at 42, married, happy. Well, let me rephrase that. You're married. Things look great. Uh, you're at the top of this this ladder of corporate. You're making good money. Things are looking good there. But you're waking up with anxiety. You're feeling there's there's something that's causing this. You go on a week long retreat, and everything changes. Everything changes exactly as anxiety goes away. Exactly. I still had to do my work over the next five years to kind of integrate them into their life. So I don't want your listeners to take away. Oh my God, magical moment. Life changes. That's, by the way, the same issue when people go on psychedelic retreats. You do one week, you have amazing experiences. If you don't integrate, nothing changes. Actually, you get worse because you see something that is amazing all of a sudden. And then all of a sudden, you go back to the day-to-day and you're like, oh my God, now I've actually seen how happy I can be and how great I can be. But I'm caught in this. You got to take action. You got to work at it. And you weren't wrong when you said you were at the top of your ladder you were married. You said you were happy and you said, let me take that back. But I'll tell you, no, you're correct. I was happy. But what the difference was, I experienced joy like so many others. When we are children, I experienced joy, but I wasn't joyful. And I'll differentiate the meaning between the two. What does it mean to feel joy, but not be joyful? I would feel the joy because the external things may cause me to feel the joy. There we go. I got a promotion, something happened, I had a good food, I bought something. Of course, I'm not like, oh my God, this is okay. I'm chasing joy, but I'm not joyful, which is even if something bad happens, I am joyful because I look for what's the meaning in this. But my state isn't one of these huge amplitudes of ups and downs that so many people go through. This yo-yo, I'm high, I'm low, I'm high, I'm low, I'm high, I'm low. And oftentimes in the world we're living in, there are more lows than highs. And that's what I mean. Contrast that with children. You have young ones. If you think about as a child, most children experience three things that as adults we lose, which means we forget it, which means it is in us, but we forget. As children, we are immersed in what we are doing for hours. As adults, we check our phones 96 times in a day. That's 10 times an hour. As children, we are engaged in the Lego or the puzzle playing with dolls or playing with cars. We're just immersed. We're flowing. We have to teach adults how to flow. Like this focus, this mindful present, that's the core quality of children. We have it. We forget. 
The second core quality of children. Most children are happy. Something needs to happen to make them unhappy. I fall down, I get hurt, I'm hungry, I have a wet nappy. Something has to happen to make them unhappy. But in general, a base state of a baby is smiles and laughs. As adults, that's not our base state. Something needs to happen to make us happy. Most of the people you ask, how's life? It's okay. Good. How are things? I'm busy. That's not the answer. How are you? I'm awesome. Like you experience when you start doing this work, every moment is awesome. Every moment is magical. We can go back to our base state that we have as a children. You know, the third thing about children, most children haven't formed. This is me. This is not me. You are like me. They are just implicitly, yeah, the children, and they'll get with it. Color of the skin doesn't matter. How rich you are, how poor you are doesn't matter. What clothes are you wearing doesn't matter. We are inclusive. We haven't associated labels yet. We haven't separated the self from the other yet. We haven't separated ourselves from nature yet. But as humans, all of a sudden, I'm a consultant. I am a Christian. I am a Hindu. I am American. I am black. I am white. I am middle class. I am rich. I work for this company. We start putting labels and we implicitly, you know, labels and our identifications are like self-made prisons. And then we wonder, why are we so disconnected? Why are we so polarized? Because we are so associating with kind of this label, this identity, this image. In the end, we are all humans. And even one further, we are all living beings. There is no difference from a consciousness point of view between us and most other living beings around. There's this beautiful work done by this botanist it's called The Secret Life of Trees, which talks about how trees are sentient beings and care for each other and are deeply connected to each other. You know, there's amazing work done on animals. There's a beautiful book that I was reading the other day. This one by Carl Safina. It's called Beyond Words. And it's three stories. It's about what animals think and feel. It was Jane Goodall's work with chimpanzees for the first time that I don't know if people are aware of her work. When she studied chimpanzees, she made for the first time, there was this theory that humans use tools. Those who use tools are humans. And she showed that chimpanzees use tools too. And so basically this notion of either we need to stop calling humans as those who make tools or we need to fundamentally change the definition of who we call a human. Because animals think and feel just like us. Plants think and feel just like us. We think of ourselves as human and separated from nature. And frankly, Matt, to me, this notion of breaking away from the true reality of who we are, going back to children don't have that. Going back to like things... Nature is for us to be exploited, to increase our humanity and what we get as humans is behind the crisis we have ecologically. It's behind the crisis we have humanitarian-wise. It's behind the crisis we are facing in stress, anxiety, and burnout. Because we're trying to control things external to us and exploit things external. We'll never exploit ourselves. We always exploit things external to us. And now, today's sponsor for the Eternal Optimist podcast is the core value of appreciation. Thank you, dear listener, for investing your precious time and attention into hearing this podcast right now. In the present moment, right now, I invite you to take a deep breath and breathe in appreciation. You are appreciated. You are making a difference. You may not hear it often. You're going to hear it right now. You can do anything you put your mind to through taking action, learning, and discipline. I thank you 
for your efforts and everything you do, and the world thanks you, the unsung hero. Thank you. You are appreciated. Now, back to the show. Well, let's talk about breaking the paradigms then, because you came to this moment of clarity where you saw through the portal, you saw that you could be joyful, you could do it, and then you had to integrate, you had to do the work. And you've been doing the work. You, you set out yeah. doing the work, practicing, teaching, learning, reading, everything to do the work. So if you were to compare where you were then, you had moments of happiness, but you weren't truly happy. Where are you now on this journey you know, five, six years later since you've been integrating and doing it? For sure, I'm healthier. I'm about 30 pounds lighter. <laughs> I was pre-diabetic. I had high A1Cs. I had high cholesterol, not large enough to need statins, but getting there. And all of those are things I'm not dealing with anymore. They're all under control. I'm much lighter. I have more energy. I am happier. The practice that changed my life out of all of those nine practices, Matt, one of the biggest ones, you know, purpose was a huge one. Self-awareness was a big one. And I trained as an ontological coach with Newfield Network. Amazing journey. I literally did a nine-month program, and I started working with that with my clients. Finding my purpose was a big one. I was very successful. My last six years, Matt, even at McKinsey, I was there for five years. And it's unbelievable. My last five years at the firm, I went part-time. So I was working 70% of the time. And 70% of the time at McKinsey meant I was working 35, 40 hours. But I was working three days a week and I would do three to four hours calls on Mondays and Fridays. So I was working less. I was more successful. My output as a partner, my impact with my clients didn't go down at all. It was actually the same. So I was more effective. I could use the rest of my time to read. I was more productive too. I was reading. I was coaching. I learned. I did courses with spiritual teachers, with neuroscientists. I did courses with psychologists. I read over 500 books. Like I used to read, I still read 20, 30 hours a week, continuously learning, integrating. And so that happened. When I think about the impact of that from and to, I'm doing work now that is literally my personal passion. You know, I'm building this company and we're creating offerings with a sole purpose of democratizing happiness. That's my mission in life for the rest of my life. Democratize happiness. What does that mean? Democratize happiness doesn't mean everybody deserves happiness, of course. Democratize happiness means making the tools that make us happy accessible to as many people as I can. Our goal is to touch a billion people over the next 20 years and beyond. And I don't need to touch a billion people. I just need this work and people in the community to be able to reach that. Because there's probably seven to 10 people in the world that have reached a billion people. Narendra Modi, because he leads India, the most populous country now, reaches a billion six. Preston Xi reaches whatever, billion two, billion three. The Pope reaches a lot through his message. Individuals can't reach. So what I'm trying to do is unleash a revolution that enrolls other coaches, teachers, healers into taking this work and helping push it through in different communities, in different countries, with veterans, with parents, really creating a revolution that helps make these tools accessible so they can change the environments in which they are operating, change the context in which they are operating. That clarity of vision for me, Matt, was never there for 22 years of my professional life. I would chase the next opportunity versus say, this is the opportunity. This is what I'm doing. Everything I want to do is around this. If it is not around flourishing, if it's not around this goal, I don't want to think about it. And that power that comes from focusing in on something that is true. And by the way, that is truly a calling from within. That's the other important thing. Because the difference is every step that I take on this path, 
makes me happier. Every life I touch transforms and transforms so many others. Just the conversation that you and I had briefly, you've shared that now through this podcast and so many others, the one minute practice. That's beautiful. That is what I want to create. And that's been the shift for me. And all of a sudden then, when you have setbacks, when somebody says, that's not for me, you don't go into the judgment mode on yourself or the other. You just say, okay, that's fine. There's, look, we are living in a world of 8 billion people. I would say there's about 100,000 plus light warriors, as I call them. And if I can enroll more people to just wake up, to find their light within, I think together we can fight this darkness that seems to be taking over our whole world. What's a light warrior? Please tell me more. It's people who are waking up. It's people who are living, they have come alive by connecting back to who they are and are consciously on a journey to master their inner worlds and to teach others ways to wake up and master their inner worlds. We all have the light within, Matt. You know what happens? So this is a go back to our children analogy. So as children, we are focused. We are happy. We are fundamentally in connection with everything. As adults, we are not. What happens? What's the first thing a parent tells the child? Be careful. Don't do that. I've done that myself. Study hard. If you don't study hard, you're going to fall back in grades. How are you going to get a job? How are you going to go to college? Fears start to come up. Boys do this. Girls do this. This is who we are. Be careful of strangers. We start building armors to protect ourselves because all of a sudden we start to not feel safe. When we start shutting doors, what happens? Light also stops coming in. Light also stops going out. So we create our own prisons. We'll start creating this darkness around. We're constantly carrying around these notions. There's so many people who I talk with, 70, 80% have some version of not enough that's driving their life. And people feel perfection and being enough is the price they need to pay for being loved and being included. It's a very survivalist kind of thing that we've picked up from 20,000 years ago, millions of years. If I didn't belong in a group, I wouldn't survive. And we are still living that story when it's not true. And so a lot of not enough comes from if, hey, if they recognize I'm not smart enough, young enough, beautiful enough, intelligent enough, I'm going to be excluded from that group. So I put this up and pretend to be somebody I'm not or like try and act from that place. But when I put up that armor to guard my own insecurity, my own imperfections, because everybody else is perfect, they're not. We also crowd out the light. We invite darkness because we are fundamentally working from a place of fear. Struggling with this concept of putting up these barriers to protect and doing that, we may unintentionally impede the light from getting to the children. So we actually create this cocoon and trying to help them turn the lights off for them. We do. In fact, there is this amazing work done by Teach Nan. He was a spiritual, he was a meditation yep. Buddhist monk. And I was, I was in one of his, as I was listening to one of the, one of the lectures that he was given, I was thinking about it. Think about this, Matt. Most parents do this in a way to protect mm -hmm. their children, but they don't think about the effect of that. I haven't thought about it. I've done this myself. I'm not a saint. We learn from our own failures. We learn from our own kind of trials. Think about when you have a four-year-old or a six-year-old or an eight-year-old or a 10-year-old, and to a four-year-old, when a parent shouts, we don't think about it. Because in the moment when we shout, when we reprimand, we're doing it because we want them to stop doing something that we think is going to hurt them. Most of the time, most parents, when they shout, they don't shout because they're trying to be mean. That's right. They've done something to annoy, and it's just like, don't do that. I'm at the edge. So think about it at that moment. That four-year-old, you are their safe haven, and you are a giant. They're small. 
and you are a giant. We don't think about how that outburst goes into them, how they experience it. Imagine if somebody really massive, two times your size, who had cared for you this whole time, shouted at you. Yeah, we create trauma in our kids. And by the way, the answer isn't to not do that. The answer isn't, oh, don't shout. Because if you withhold the shout, you're creating more hurt for yourself. Suppressing anger, suppressing frustration is not good either. And that's why I say it's about conquering our world. It's about working on us, integrating practices that allow us to not experience that in the first place. Again, going back to what you said to me before, Matt, when we started, even this one minute practice, right? When you said, when I'm with my kids and they're acting up, just that one minute is creating space for you to be compassionate. Compassion is an energy you're choosing from within versus frustration. So you're not shutting the frustration down. You're not saying, I'm not going to be frustrated. I'm using the power of compassion to say, I want to really understand what's going on. I'm not going to judge, but I'm going to tune into what's happening for something else to emerge. And to me, that is the heart of the work. Inner work we can do to fundamentally become more resilient, to elevate our consciousness, and to just create our life energies and organize our life energies in a way that allow happiness to emerge from within, that allow love to emerge from within. Here's what I just heard you say. I'm not going to judge. Instead, I'm going to tap into being compassionate in the moment. It's okay to feel the frustration. It's okay to feel the anger because those are natural things. But rather than act on that, I'm going to work to integrate being present with compassion. So the antidote to frustration or anger or whatnot, it's not suppress it. It's learn to convert into compassion. That is it. And I think that is the heart of so much. I'll give you another story. It's changed so much of my relationship with people, my relationship with my wife, all of that. Let's do a thought experiment together. Let's assume you, you have a potted flower in your house and the flower was beautiful and it was very fragrant for a long time. But let's assume that, you know, of the last two, four weeks, even like month, you've started to notice the flower isn't as fragrant. It's starting to shrivel a bit, starting to look limp. Matt, if you looked at that flower, what would you do? Well, if I smelled it, it's not as fragrant, it's starting to look limp. I might first see, is it near enough sun? I might try to put some more water on it. I might try to do something that I've been trained to do or think about plants that helps them grow. That's what I would probably do. What's your core energy? What are you solving for? You're solving for what does the plant need? Why is the flower not looking at healthy anymore? And then you'll say, I'm giving nutrients, water, sunlight. I'm going to research. Is there something else mm -hmm. happening there? Beautiful. We are at an all-time high rate of divorces. When a relationship, when you fall in love, the person you fall in love with is like a flower. They bring you joy. You love being around them. When that relationship starts to wither, when that person starts to annoy when there is acrimony in a relationship, what's our first move? I can tell you what it's not. It's not more sunlight, more nutrients. It's, I don't want to be around that flower. I'm going to go to my man cave. That might be one thing. You have changed. You are doing this and this that is annoying okay. me anymore. Why are you doing that? We never say, hey, what was my role? What have I done to make that person be this way? Why are they acting this way? Why has this changed? So this notion of frustration and judgment to compassion, it's the same thing. Rather than look at the other for what is wrong with you, you turn inwards to say what is wrong with us. 
What is wrong with me? Yes, I, I will take it one step further and keep building uh, and give a personal example that I feel I show up with pretty good energy and uh, love and, and kindness and curiosity most of the time. And if I were to come home or finish working one day and my wife were not in a great mood, uh, I would wonder why is she not in a great mood? I'm bringing all my energy and joy and whatnot. And what I didn't realize is that, yeah, I'm bringing it now after I've been gone for the last 14 hours, but maybe it's not just me in that moment that she needs. Maybe she needs more of that more frequently. What am I noticing is I'm noticing that me not being present is leading to that, not just when I'm here. Exactly. And so those are the shifts, right? Again, it is around, we can never control a human being. We can never control anything external. Look, that is the reality, but we can 100% be in control of our own experience. And that's all it is. We can control how we show up. We can control through what lens are we looking? Am I looking to judge about what's wrong? And I'm looking from compassion to just see where they are and what is most needed right now. And what even might be my role in creating it? This has been amazing. So before we do the wrap up, I'd love to ask you, what might be one example you might can share of an exercise that our listeners can try at home to help them in their mindfulness or to help them on their journey? Yeah. Look, first of all, Matt, I'll just tell you, thank you for having me. And it's been a real pleasure to be here with you. People can learn a lot more on happinesssquad.com. I'm sure you'll share mm -hmm. the details. We're also launching a community of learners, teachers, and practitioners where people can show up every week and practice with others because it's all about practice. It's not about knowing. It's about doing. So here's a practice that people can do. And it's so quick. You already shared one of those, which is mindfulness, mindful brushing. Here's a practice. Every morning when people wake up, I invite your listeners to set an intention for how they want to be today. Oftentimes, the first thing we do is we focus on what we want to do today. What are the tasks that need to be done? Before you do that, just choose on how you want to be today. And choose one of several phrases, and you can find them on our website, but you can just choose. You can make your own around these practices. You can choose to set an intention to say, I'm going to experience a day as more mindful, more grateful, with more compassion, with more love, with more connection. Choose a feeling, a way of being, because you do not control the gifts the world has in store for you today. You control your energy. You control where you are choosing to focus. You should celebrate and congratulate yourself because one step, one response at a time is how we hardwire ourselves for happiness, how we hardwire ourselves for love and meaning. So that's it. Every morning and just notice what can I be grateful for even in this moment? Find one of those nine things, make a practice out of those nine and see how it changes your life. Thank you for that, Ashish. Appreciate you. What are the places we can find out more about you? Yeah, so look, my book is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, right? So that people can order there. They can also go to happinesssquad.com and there itself, they'll see all the places mm -hmm. they can get. We're also launching a community with a masterclass, which is all around. I took the neuroscience of habit formation and I've created a program that allows people to just learn five-minute practices. We're going to launch it in a community called community.happinessquad.com. And so people can learn more about that there. They can already sign up for it. For now, we've kept it free. It's going to be a paid community for March. But when I say paid, it's a dollar a day. I wanted to completely reduce the friction from people showing up with others like-minded mm -hmm. on this journey. That's where I would go. Those are the two places. I also post on Instagram. My happiness squad is the handle so they can go there. Um, I usually post daily videos of some spiritual reading or other. It's a 90 second reading to start our day with. 
But listen, I'm so glad you're doing this amazing work, Matt. Thank you for having me. Thank you for helping me spread the word. I love the eternal optimist because again, by what you're saying is you can choose. It's choice that you're offering mm. your listeners. It's choice and it's about practices. So listen, but do. Do one thing from this from this 60-minute conversation. Choose one thing to do, but just start there mm. and do it. Absolutely. Uh, Ashish, thank you so much for being with us today, brother. Uh, much appreciate you. We'll put all these show notes, all the links in there, and we'll drive people your way. This is a, a noble and necessary uh, mission you're on to serve the world in this way. We need it. We need more of you. We need more of this. So uh, thank you for coming on today and uh, love you, man. Thanks so much. Same here, Matt. Take care. Later, buddy. Thanks for listening to the Eternal Optimist podcast. You can check the show notes for information about today's episode. And please share the show with that friend who is wanting to think bigger. We'll see you next time.